Tick-tock, tick-tock, thus goes the clock. Real time. We sleep in real time. We eat in real time. We work in real time. We play in real time. But what about our Christian faith? Do we live it out, really, in real time? Join us for the sermon series, Christianity in Real Time. Well, turn with me to James chapter 3, the third chapter of James, as we make our way through the letter of James. If you're able to stand to honor God in the reading of His Word, I invite you to stand as we read James chapter 3. I was uh, walking back to my seat after praying, and uh, I just heard in my spirit, and I believe I need to share this with you, what if, what if God... What if God calls your grandchildren to the mission field? That is glorious in my sight. That is glorious. And I would praise him for it if that were to happen. And I pray that you would praise God if God called my grandchildren or if he called yours or your children to the mission field. James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, or we all make many mistakes. And if anyone does not stumble or make a mistake in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, and it is set on, and it sets on fire the entire course of life, and that is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil. It is full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you, by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit, open this truth to our hearts today 
that we might hear it, that we might see it, that we might receive it, that we might believe it, and that we might be changed by it, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Many of the students who spent far more time than me studying the book of James consider James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, not James 2, 14 through 16, as I wrote it in the outline. They consider James 2, 14 through 26 the center and soul of this entire book. It is in this section that we are confronted by the major theological concern of this book, and it's also in this section that we're confronted with the most controversial issue in this book, and that issue is faith without works is dead being alone. Uh, David Platt has said that James 2.24 may be the thesis statement for the entire book of James. This is what James 2.24 says. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. From James 2, 14 through 26, flows the rest of the book, and the rest of the book addresses the main issues of concern whenever faith is divorced from works. So what James wants us to see is where we need to look in our own hearts and in our own lives so that we can say, I know that God has given me the gift of faith and I have trusted Jesus alone to save me. And as a result of that, the Holy Spirit is working in my life to change it. And these issues that James addresses reveal the ongoing, unending change that God produces. Now here's the reality of the Bible. When you really have faith in Jesus, real faith, It produces ongoing and increasing faithfulness to Jesus as Lord. The truth is that when we've been saved by the grace of God alone, what it produces in us is a desire to be godly and a growth in godliness. The truth is when you and I open our hearts to Jesus, if you want to use that language, you ask Jesus into your heart, When you open your heart to Jesus and you bow before Jesus as Lord, what it produces is a desire in your heart to obey the Word of God. Faith without works is dead being alone. Now what James says, this is not Al saying this, this is James saying this, is that if you really want to see that faith is connected to works in your own life, every believer in this room can read this passage, reflect on this passage, and every one of us can ask as we go through this section this morning, do I really know that I desire to be faithful to Jesus and to follow him? The first place you look is right here. You look at your tongue. You listen to your talk. You pay attention to your language because the tongue reveals a heart and the tongue does not lie about what is really in our 
hearts. Now, as we launch this teaching, preaching this morning, there are two things about which I want to be clear. I just want to make sure that you and I are clear about this. Number one, when we talk about the Apostle Paul and his understanding of what it means to be made right with God by faith, what Paul is addressing is not in any way what James is addressing. Uh, Paul is addressing our relationship with God. The question is, how do I know that I am right with God? And the answer is, it's not by anything we do. It's not by our works. It's not by what we say about believing. It is by the reality that the grace of God has worked in us and the grace of God has brought us to faith in Jesus and we have been changed and we are being changed. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Jesus Christ alone. That is what scripture teaches us and that salvation by grace through faith brings glory to God. James is not addressing that issue. James is addressing an entirely different issue. Here's his issue. How do people know that I'm right with God? And the answer is, well, I tell them. No. You ought to tell them. You ought to tell them what God has done in your life. But that's not how people know. Your brothers and sisters in this church, they don't know that you're right with God because you tell them. The people in your family don't know you're right with God because you tell them. The people at your workplace or in the classroom with you in school, they don't know you're right with God because you tell them. They look at your life. They look at your deeds. They listen to your talk. They watch your actions. That's how they know. We are made right with God by grace through faith, but the way people know that we're right with God is they look at how we live. They listen to what we say, and they have a right to do that, to examine us. That's what James is addressing here, and he says the most critical area is the tongue. That's where he begins. He begins with teachers. He moves to talk about talking, and then he concludes by letting us know that our tongues tell the truth about who we really are. He talks first to teachers. Not many of you, this is an imperative. He issues here an imperative. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. What is he talking about in this imperative? It's a clear imperative. It's not a recommendation. It's not a suggestion. It is a command. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. I was looking at this text, studying this text staring at this word for teachers. And then all of a sudden it hit me. (laughs) Al, look at the word. Look at the word that's used for teachers. The word is important. It's not talking about any teacher and every teacher. 
It is talking about those men and women in the church who are called of God, set apart by God to teach the Word of God. Now, you and I know that the Bible is clear. That in the midst of the corporate worship of God, when men and women are gathered together to worship God, those who teach in the church are men only. That's clear. The Bible does not stutter about that. But God has raised up in his church women that are used of God to teach other women. And they're gifted teachers. And they gather women together and they teach women or they teach other ages. But the teaching office, the office of the elder or the office of the pastor is given to men only. This is what James is addressing here. Not many of you should be in this office. Who should be in this office? Only those who are clearly called of God to be in this office. I believe the office of pastor is the highest office that a man can occupy in the entire universe. It's higher than the president. It's higher than the prime minister. It's higher than the king. It's higher than the pope. It's the most important office in the entire world. And it's not for everybody. It's for those that God has called and set apart. And when a man knows he's called of God to preach and teach the word of God, then he makes sure that he gives himself his time and energy to be equipped, to be engaged, to be educated, to be formed and fashioned so he knows the power of the Word of God, the scope of the Word of God, the purpose of the Word of God, the theology of the Bible knows the grammar of the Word of God so that he can help people understand the truth of God's Word. It's the highest office in the land. And James says, be careful. Be careful. Not many of you should become teachers. He issues this as an imperative. Uh, Something's wrong in a church when we let stand in the pulpit whoever wants to stand in the pulpit regardless of their background or their training or their ability to handle well the truth of God. We need to examine people. If God raises up a man in this church as he's done or men in this church who say, I'm called of God to be a pastor, the first thing we should do is mentor them and pray with them and examine them to make sure that they are truly called. I thank God for the men that have come out of this church that are serving God in other places and being used of God to advance his kingdom. The imperative is Don't many of you, this office is not for everyone. Not many of you should become teachers. Why? Because he gives an incentive. It's an incentive. It may be a negative incentive, but it's still an incentive. He says, you know, that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Go back to Hebrews chapter 13. Listen to what, well, listen to what Paul says here. Hebrews 13, verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls. He's talking about those who teach and preach God's word, the elders in the church. As those who will have to give an account, have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage. 
to you. Any man who's called of God to preach the word of God that does not feel the weight of what he's called to do should not be preaching. The weight of it. I feel the weight of it. I feel the weight of it Sunday morning, Sunday night. We only have a handful in our Wednesday night prayer time right now. Only a handful. And I teach every Wednesday night. I'm telling you, I don't care whether there are five there or 500. I feel the weight of it because God has called the teacher to handle sacred truth, the most important book in the world. That's why James warns. But he also issues an instructive word for which I'm very grateful. Verse 2, for we all stumble. Every teacher stumbles in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is perfect. He's a perfect man, also, also able to bridle his own body. That's why, by the way, I don't care who the preacher is, who the pastor is. I don't care who the podcast preacher is. Never put your confidence in people. They will fail you. Every one of them. Every one of them. Put your confidence in the word of God. When you hear a teacher... Go read what he's teaching from. Study it. Look at it. Examine it. If it's not right, tell him. (laughs) Because we all make many mistakes. I was teaching Sunday school last week, talking about Acts 17, Stephen being stoned. And I said, as Stephen was being stoned, they took his bloody clothes and threw them at the seat of Saul. One of our Sunday school class members said, you know, I went and tried to find that. I couldn't find it. Now, she was very kind and gracious, praise God. They didn't throw Stephen's clothes. They threw the the clothes of those who were stoning Stephen. They disrobed and threw their clothes at the feet of Stephen. She was right. She's absolutely right. 100% right. Thank God she told me. I, I never mind it when you challenge something I say as being... That's just not biblical. It's not right. That's fine. You should. You must. That's what James tells us. That's why teaching is so hard. You can, those of you who teach Sunday school, you know this, whether you're teaching second graders or senior adults, you know this. You can study hard. You can pray hard. You can think you've got it just right. And then you still make a boo-boo. Right? Yeah. Then he turns to talking. He turns to the most important part of this, I think. He wants us to see the critical nature of the tongue. Isaiah, when... He was encountered by the holiness of God. He cried out, Woe, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Uh, Several years back, maybe a year or two back, I, I led our Wednesday night group through a study of Proverbs. I had never taught Proverbs. I had been afraid to teach Proverbs. I didn't know how to teach Proverbs, so I wanted to learn how to teach Proverbs. So in order to prepare to teach Proverbs, I read through Proverbs for 12 straight days every day. I read the whole book for 12 straight days just trying to get Proverbs into me. 
And on about the 12th day, I realized there are some themes in Proverbs that just keep coming up. So I went back and read for 10 more days, and I'm writing down the themes and the text for each theme. Do you know what is near the top of the issues that Solomon deals with in the Proverbs? <laughs> the tongue. Now go with me very quickly to Proverbs, and let me just show you some of these. Proverbs 10, 19. We'll just kind of walk through a few of these, try to deal with them as we get to them. I won't do them all for time, but you can read them later. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 17 of Proverbs 10, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Go over to chapter 12, verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Go over to chapter 15. A soft answer, verse 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. A fool despises his father's instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is prudent. Verse 7 of chapter 15, the lips of the wise spread knowledge, but not so the hearts of fools. Chapter 18, verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. And those who love it will eat its fruits. Your tongue, your talk has power. My tongue, my talk has power. James uses four images to talk about the tongue. He says the tongue is like, it's like a bridle with a bit on a horse. It's like a rudder on a ship. It's like a spark that creates a fire. It's like trying to tame birds and beasts and other kinds of creatures. And the issue, the issue when he writes this is not the bridle and the bit. It's, it's not the rudder on the ship. It's not the spark that creates the fire. It's, it's not the taming of the animals. It's the person who's in control. The rider of the horse, the captain of the ship, the one who sets the fire, the one who is taming these beasts. That is why when you try to tame a tongue teaching a child, I think too often what we're out, what we're after as parents is behavior change. We just want them to act right, particularly when they're in public. Say the right words in the right way. Don't embarrass me when we're in public. Behavior change never works. That's why what James addresses is the heart. Who controls your heart? Whoever controls your heart, it'll show up in your speech. You will hear it in the way we use our tongue. Listen to what he says in verses 3 and following. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, they obey us. 
We guide their whole bodies. That's what is important. Who's guiding the horse? Look at the ships also, though they're so large and are driven by strong winds. They are guided by a small rudder. The captain employs the wheel to move the rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and so on. Look at verse 5. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it, you should have the word boast there, it boasts of great things. That word is never used anywhere else in the whole Bible. It is a word that's only used in classical Greek. It's not a negative word. It's a positive word. Your tongue has great power. Either to bless or to curse, either to commend or condemn. It's like a fire. A fire can purge and it can purify. When the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, what is the image that is used of the coming of the Holy Spirit? It was like fire. A fire can purge and purify or it can destroy. There was a massive fire in the city of Chicago, October the 8th, 1871. 100,000 people were left homeless. 17,500 buildings were destroyed. 300 people died. It cost the citizens of Chicago over $400 million to rebuild the city. Fire is destructive. But there are farmers in this county who either have already done this or will do this soon. They will burn their lands to prepare for the planting of a new crop. Purging and purifying. Your tongue has great power. Your tongue not only talks, your tongue tells what is in your heart. Your tongue does not lie. John MacArthur says the tongue is in you in a unique way. It is a tattletale that tells on the heart and discloses the person. The genuineness of your faith will inevitably be demonstrated by your speech. Now, you need to know and I need to know what the tongue is when it's unredeemed. And we're born, we're all born with unredeemed hearts and unredeemed tongues. And so James sets before us seven images so that we will see the depravity of our tongues from the moment we're born. Beginning, beginning in the end of verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Here's the first image. The tongue is a fire. Second image. The tongue is a world of unrighteousness. It's full of evil because it is an expression of an evil heart. The tongue is set among our members. It stains the whole body. It stains our brains. It stains our hands. It stains our feet. It stains everything about us. 
Number four, it sets on fire the entire course of life. Our whole life is set by what we say and how we talk. And it's set on fire by hell. Every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creatures can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. No human being. We can't tame our tongues. We can't control our tongues. There are those moments when out of a depraved heart, we say things that show exactly what is in our hearts. Number six, it is a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. You can't tame it. You can't say, well, I, I just won't talk anymore. You can't say, well, I will do some behavior modification therapy that will help me because it won't. There's only one human by God's design who can change your heart and thus change your speech, and that's God. And James begins here because there's no more critical member of our body than our tongue because our tongue tells the true condition of our heart. At verse 9, look at this. With it, that is with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. This is not just about fellow Christians and fellow church members and fellow family members. This is about any person, anywhere, in every place, at every time, all of us made in the image of God and worthy of honor and respect. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. Now look at the end of verse 10 because I want you to make sure that you and I get right the end of verse 10 because this is one of those places that we could woefully misinterpret. My brothers, at the end of verse 10, my sisters, these things ought not to be so. And at this point, you can stand back, put your hands in your pocket and say, well, I know it ought not to be so, but that's just the way it is. It is what it is. I hate that phrase. But it's so popular. It is what it is. Just is what it is. This is just who I am. I can't help it. The word ought here doesn't indicate what is. It indicates God's will according to God's word. This does not honor God. This does not exalt God. This does not please God. This must be changed. And God has come in Jesus Christ to save us, to place his Holy Spirit in us so that we are changed and it shows up first and foremost in our tongue. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I hesitate to tell the story. I hesitated to include it. Martin Lloyd-Jones was for years the pastor of Westminster Chapel, and along the way there, 
a woman started attending the chapel and applied for membership, and she was always criticizing, always complaining. Nothing was ever right. She was a gossip about everything and everybody. Finally, the elders met, and they brought her under church discipline. They refused to admit her to the Lord's Supper, which is one of the things church discipline does and does rightly and biblically. They prayed for her. They pleaded for her to submit to the Word of God and be changed, and she just kept on. She was constantly criticized, constant complaint. You know people like this, don't you? You you see them coming, and you say, Oop, I think God's calling me in the other direction. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on this text one day. Martin Lloyd-Jones at Westminster Chapel, after he preached, he went to a room and people could come by and visit with him, speak to him, pray with him. They could, he would pray with them. Well, this woman showed up. Nothing had changed in her life for years. She walked in and she said, Dr. Jones, I just need you to know that God really convicted me today and I'm going to change. I'm going to stop criticizing, complaining, and gossiping. I know it's a sin, and I'm going to change. And he just said, there's been no change for years. What can you do that would indicate change? She said, this is what I want to do. Next Sunday morning, I want to come to the front at the altar, and I want to put my tongue on the altar. She turned and began to walk away, and Dr. Jones said, now he's a Brit. Brits are courteous. He said, ma'am, we don't have an altar that big. God does. He asks you to lay your heart on the altar. We live in a culture where I think people think they have to comment on everything. Where we have to have an opinion about everything. Unfortunately, we live in a culture where we don't talk to each other much. You know what we mean when we say, I talked to so-and-so today? It means we texted them. We had a conversation. I text, not much. I found out about a month ago, if somebody texts you, you're supposed to text them back. I didn't know that. I just thought people talked to me to give me information. I don't always text back. Sometimes I don't think I should. <laughs> we post everything on Facebook. Whatever comes into our head, we post it. That's why I'm not on Facebook anymore. I just don't. It's not good for my soul. It's, it's corruptive. So I want you to see this. I think we need to get to a place as Christians. You want to control your tongue? Then pray more and talk less. You don't have to comment on everything. You know, Facebook and Twitter and all those other things, Instagram and Snapchat and whatever else is out there, they're a wonderful place for people to say in those places what you would never say in public or face-to-face with somebody. It's a good place to hide. So here's what I want to ask you. Before you post or tweet, ask these questions, five of them. Number one, do my words encourage fellow believers? If not, don't do it. Do my words exalt Jesus and bring glory to God? If not, don't do it. 
Do my words proclaim the gospel? Do my words show that I love those? This was a big one for me. Do my words show that I love those with whom I agree and I love those with whom I disagree? Do my words show a pure heart or an impure heart that really needs to talk or post less and pray more? Be careful, little tongue, what you say. People in the world are listening. And they have every right to judge who we are in our hearts by what we say. Final slide, pray more, talk less. I came up with the second one all on my own. I was pretty proud of this. God locked the tongue behind closed lips and in closed mouth and a set of teeth for a reason. Isn't that good? Be quick to hear. Slow to speak. Truth is, I think every one of us in this room wants other people to see Jesus in us. Don't we?